0: You guys hear this with every podcast uh like subscribe all of that on youtube and everything but you guys it really does mean something so if you guys can take the time after you hear this episode or just pause it do me a favor go to itunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now and rate us leave us a comment everything helps with the algorithm i feel that we're doing an important message here by talking to veterans and letting them share their stories We're not talking to the most out there veterans, some of the big names who get their messages out fairly easy. We're talking to the average guy for the most part. And anything you can do to help us promote the show would help out a lot. So please take the time. If you like this show, rate us. If you hate this show, rate us, but leave us a comment. All of that helps with any of the algorithms, iTunes, Spotify, just to get our show promoted a little bit more. Thank you. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I sit down with Kyle Putman, a track coach with Team Navy for the Navy Wounded Warrior Adaptive Sports Program. I met Kyle in 2018 when inadvertently he convinced me to try out for track for the DOD Warrior Games. Kyle's been a coach of track since the 90s, but it wasn't until 2013 that he joined Team Navy and is been the track coach there since we talk about what adaptive sports mean, what it means to him to give back and help with these programs. We go deep into some of his philosophies and we talk about how, in his opinion and mine, how weird it's been in 2020 for not being able to actually attend meets or do 5Ks. So we get into it and I think you guys will get a lot out of this. Kyle's the first non-veteran that we're going to have on, on this show. And I think it's important that we talk to the people who support the veteran community. And there's very few people I could say who support the veteran community more than Kyle Putman. So sit back and enjoy this episode of after the battle campfire. All right. I'm back with my track coach and Navy team Navy's um, track coach coach. Kyle Putman. Kyle, thank you for coming on.
1: It's good to be here, Tommy. Good to talk to you.
0: I am so glad you came on and said yes. Um, What I'm doing, like I just told you before we started recording, is I want to bring on people who really support veterans. Um, And not just in a thank you for your service way, but people who actually take their time to help veterans out. And let's start with a little bit about your background. Uh, I know you're in the South. Were you raised in Alabama?
1: Yes, uh, I was raised in a small rural community, about an hour, hour 50 minutes north of Birmingham, Alabama, almost in the center of the state. Um, We lived outside, four four miles outside of a community of about 4,500 people. So for the most part, the kids I started to first grade with were the kids that I Graduated high school with, Um, I think there was like 73, 75, something like that of us. So it's a little tight knit little community. Um, And like you said, in the South, and it's uh, close to where I live now, live in the Birmingham metropolitan area, um, which that encompasses about a million, a million and a quarter population.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't realize it's Birmingham in general was that big yeah so growing up uh were you guys around any military installations or did you have a military influence in your life
1: my my dad was air force when i was born oh okay. uh, yeah he was air force stationed at moody air force base and uh we lived uh off the end of the runway, probably about ten or twelve miles off the end, and he was maintenance and would do check rides on T thirty threes, T T thirty eights. And he would come home every afternoon and tell mom how many loads of laundry she washed because he could come over the top of the house and you know, see the laundry out hanging on the on the on the clothesline, you know. Back before wow. we back before we had uh, clothes dryers in every laundry room but uh, yeah it was it was there that was a uh, mid60s early to mid 60s when we lived uh, near Valdosta, little uh, there in another, another small town Ray City Georgia. Okay. So uh, yeah he spent uh, eight years in the Air Force and then got out and moved back to where where he grew up which is where I grew up
0: Okay. Okay. So, um, as I said, you were a, you are, not were, you are the track coach, track and field coach for Team Navy. Um, And we'll get into that. I'm curious, as a kid, did you run track? Were you involved in track programs?
1: I grew up in the South. Football dominates the South.
0: That's why I was asking.
1: Yeah. You got to remember that. And when you are not a big guy, you know, even today I'm what five, six, a hundred and more than I need to be. But, uh, you know, I was a small guy and it was, it was tough to play. It was tough to play sport, um, lined up for PE, lined up for recess. I was, you know, I was one of the last ones chosen because I just didn't have the power. Um, couldn't hit the ball, uh, Was it quick down the line, you know, playing kickball or anything like that? Uh, But I realized that there's more to sport than just football.
0: Which I wish more people in Texas would realize that as well. So um, what got you through elementary and high school as as a smaller guy and that got you into actually looking at track?
1: I got in trouble. Uh, Fifth grade, I think it was, uh, several of us got caught spitballing. Uh, Basically, it's what we were doing. And uh, we had the option. We could run laps or we could take a paddling. You know, that was back in the days of corporal punishment. And, uh, you know, inflicting pain on another human in that way just wasn't something I was in, you know, (laughs) destined or intending to absorb at that time, so I took the laps and realized that, uh, all these football guys that were these super duper honcho athletes, I could keep up with them, you know, and finishing, you know, and finished my laps before several of those guys did, and that pushed us over into field day, uh, sixth grade, seventh grade, maybe, (laughs) I had to track, uh, 12, 16 laps to a mile, you know, that the track coach had chalked or the, the PE, the PE teacher had chalked out. And, you know, so we started running the mile, run the mile for, for field day, you know, and I finished well, I finished well there also.
0: So when you got into high school, uh, I'm assuming your elementary school didn't have a, a track team. No. But when you got into high school, did you look into joining the track team?
1: Not really. Uh, there again, um, high school program, probably 35 guys on the football team. And track was more or less an extension of spring training. Uh, you know, the guys on the line, linebackers through the shot in the distance, and the running backs were all sprinters. And that was, you know, pretty much it. Uh, my high school. Did not have uh, cross country. We did not have baseball. You know, for, oh, wow. for guys, guys sports, we had uh, football, basketball, and then, as I said, you know, just a token track program. Uh, you know, and that, that's not say anything bad about. It. That's just the way the the environment was. Everything in Alabama was that way. Um, about that time. Uh, Title Nine jumped out, um, and then more opportunity for women became on board or became available, and I think that really helps spark a lot more interaction with uh, with high school athletes being able to get into you know get into sport. I think, and it's helped. You know, um, Title Nine has helped not only the females. Uh, getting involved in sport, but males too, because, you know, we got, people can say, hey, if they can do it, I can do it. You know, yeah. so I think now my high school offers uh, golf, cross country, track, swimming, uh, with girls basketball, guys basketball, you know, it's all across the board.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't realize it. It really did open up a lot of things and Yeah. So when did you actually start competing in track or?
1: Uh, You know, I was running on my own, a little bit off and on. Uh, I think the buzzword that all the kids use now is gap year. You know, you uh, finish high school and you take a year before you get into college. Well, my gap year turned into like three or four or five. And uh, during that time, I was running, competing in road races, um, taking classes at a junior college. And was uh, hanging out with a, a kid that was on a tennis team. And she was recruited to a NAI school and convinced me to go down and talk to the cross country coach there because, you know, with NCAA requirements, I had no eligibility left because of my age. Oh, okay. But with NAI, I could still have uh, some eligibility. So I went down there to uh, to run and get my edu- my four year degree started. So I uh, were... used. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so you know, I go down there and uh, burn up my eligibility, and then come back to town to finish my degree.
0: So you um you were more of a distance runner at that time then. Yes. Yes.
1: Definitely. So. Um, you know, now it's all about the marathon, people wanting to compete in the marathon to collect a medal or go do a vacation or, you know, something along those lines. But back in the early 80s, mid-80s, it was, you know, guys were competitive. You you went out and you ran a marathon to see just how fast you could knock it out. Oh, wow. And to... uh you know, to line up against the guy next to you or your training partner or your friend and just outrun them. You know, so I, I do, in that regard, come from a competitive background. I bring a competitive uh, feel to the sport.
0: So were you doing um, marathons or were you just five, ten k type stuff?
1: We did the range. Um, anything from 5, 10 and marathon there were no half marathons back then Uh, i think we had uh in west virginia there was one on the east coast and then philadelphia had the distance classic and for the most part that was the only you know big name half marathons around uh there was one in the birmingham area uh that was it uh now you know there's probably as many half marathons as there are five Ks.
0: Oh, wow, wow. So I would be remiss not to ask. So when you got out of high school, did the military ever pop on your radar as something that you wanted to look into?
1: I think the military intimidated me. Uh, the National Guard came through and the uh, the unit in my hometown were involved with tank, armored, uh, armored vehicles tanks and stuff and one of the guys commented on my size and how well I would fit inside a tank <laughs> that that just didn't appeal to me and no, I think I don't, I don't that blame you. that comment that that guy made it was it, it just turned me off of from the military um, you know and being an Air Force guy uh, from my dad on my you know Following his, I've always had a fascination with aviation. You know, I've always been a enjoy visiting aircraft museums and and whatnot. You know, and I I look back, and if if I'd applied myself a little stronger in high school, maybe I could have gone that route, but, you know, I just don't know.
0: Well, I think what you're doing now is just as important as if you would have gone in in the, what I'm guessing would have been the late 70s, early 80s. So thank you for that. Now, speaking of which is, um, as you finished college, do you go into track and field and coaching right away or?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, UAB. Uh, I was able to become assistant track and field coach in the late eighties there. Um, and that's where I, you know, collegiately, the, the, the high performance, there again, high performance athletes is who I enjoy uh, working with and um, was on staff there, rolled around for a few years. And, you know, we talked about the good things that Title IX has done and football in the South. And those two things collided here in Birmingham in the early 90s when football was started at UAB and to make room they cut men's track and men's cross country to make Mm -hmm. room for the scholarships for 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 the football players and so you know you guys you'll have to forgive me if there's a little animosity on that (laughs) sport but uh, it has too much control
0: well isn't it I'm without getting weird conspiracy, but isn't it all because the boosters, the people who, people wanna see big football programs versus say, uh, extremely high level swimming program? Draws more people, sells more tickets, raises more money for the school. I mean, is that, isn't that the way they look at it? But, wh-
1: but why that? Let's take it back to stepfather. Why are the boosters involved?
0: I have to agree with you on that a lot.
1: <laughs> it's you know look at the TV coverage. Yeah, you know back back in the '60s uh, when I first started following track and field, um, the USA and USSR would host a dual meet. Uh, UCLA, Raleigh, North Carolina, Moscow, Leningrad. All of these cities hosted trap meets with 60,000 people in the stands. Really? Yeah. Uh, the Penn Relays in in Philadelphia, you know, there'd be 60 70,000 fans in the stand. And it's unheard of today. You know, if you go to a trap meet today, you've got a couple of grandmothers and some girlfriends. You know, that's, you know, some hangers on that really love the sport like me. You know, there's just not a big crowd unless it is, you know, a high profile like the USA track and field Olympic trials. But when television came on board with football in the 70s, things started blowing up. Um, And then in the late 70s, ESPN got involved and really elevated the profile of football on TV. Your 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 sports with all the interest are your high profile sports from right. TV viewership,
0: right? Which makes sense from from the economic standpoint of it. I, I'm i okay if I don't watch football ever again.
1: Now let me let me throw this out at you, and I'm not say I'm not saying I agree with this. I had a fellow. Um, Very wise individual, Olympic track and field coach, not the head coach, but he was on the Olympic track and field team. I'm not going to say what year, so somebody might figure it out. But he told me one time, the reason track and field is not popular is because they added women, and it doubled the time required to put on a meet. People are not going to sit here for six hours.
0: He, I mean, he has a point about the time.
1: He, he has a point. I, I, I see yeah. what he's talking about. I see what he's talking So, you know, and while there is nothing more graceful than a human body, whether it be female, male, ambulatory, chair, I don't care. Somebody moving at full acceleration is just a beautiful thing. And um, the more people we have out there, the better off we are. And if it takes a little bit longer, it's just because our society has become such so, so short-sighted. You know, we want everything right now. Yeah. You know, we just, we're just not willing to, to, you know, it's like baseball. Baseball is my favorite game. Uh, game. I can sit and watch a baseball game, and I'm okay with a 3-2 pitching duel. You know, I'm okay with three hours at the ballpark. But now we've got people that, oh, we've got to have excitement. We've got to have home runs. We've got to have, you know, let's blow this up. Let's make this bigger. Let's make this shorter. Let's add a clock so that the pitch count has to be, you know, have somewhat limited time between pitches. That's They're, they're changing the game when they do that. And it's, you know, that's what we're all about. Let's Let's get it. Let's package it. So it fits in a two and a half, three hour TV window. And let's move on to the next one.
0: Yeah, That's crazy. That, that is a big deal I, I see too. So um, going back to what, the, where we were in the 90s when uh, the football team got introduced, I didn't ask, I mean, I probably should have. So what was the process of going from, like, what did you study to get you into coaching when you were in college?
1: Teaching. Uh, but then I did, uh, uh, teaching was where I was headed because I felt like that was the best way to get involved with the sport and stay engaged. Uh, but then once I'd done some student teaching and did some classroom visits, I realized that I, public education system, the, the business of public education was not something that I wanted to get involved with. Uh, so to finish school, I flipped majors, entered uh, interdisciplinary studies, uh, and I focused on coaching. Uh, I have an emphasis in in coaching with an IDS degree.
0: So you said you worked with uh that your your passion was high performance athletes. Um, back then, what was considered a high performance athlete,
1: uh, Tommy? I think that's a state of mind. <laughs> Uh, you can be an Olympic trials qualifier uh and barely slipping under for a male, let's say you're a 220 marathon or a 30-minute 10K uh 245 for the girls at the marathon. Um uh, you know that could be high performance, but you could also be fifty years old with that same mindset of wanting to do that same quality of work and run three hours for a marathon. You know, to me, that is just as, you know, that is just as high performance as, you know, as someone that's going to stand on a podium in in Tokyo if that gets to happen.
0: Oh, wow. I, I like that, that, that way of thinking for sure. So after uh, you left, the university and coaching there when they shut down the program. Did you guys have any recourse at all to try to keep the track and field program? No,
1: there was at that point in time, there was, there was no need. And, and that, that was the same time that I met uh, my future wife and looking at plans for the future and housing and starting families and that sort of thing. And, you know, and I, I did, I, I left, I left the coaching profession for a while. Um, the reason I did not pursue the track and field program in high school is because I was working in the afternoons at a, at a used car light, uh, just doing whatever had to be done that a you know, 15, 16 year old kid to do. And um, and so when when I left when I left UAB. I got involved with rental cars. So I spent a decade in the rental
0: car industry (laughs) doing that. that. Sounds a little soul crushing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, but like I said, it, it it was some philosophical differences going on in my head as far as what I wanted to do. And I knew that to be successful at the collegiate level required a lot of relocation. And at that point in time, I was just not—I was just not willing to do that.
0: Oh, okay. So you said for about a decade. So I'm, I'm assuming that that brings you into like the early 2000s.
1: Yeah. Um, we have
0: three children. Uh,
1: the youngest two uh, were born with uh, a genetic disorder. Uh, resembles uh, cerebral palsy and they require a little bit more assistance than the typical kids. Um, and 2005, uh, I think that's the right year. Uh, we looked at the family dynamic and decided that, you know, someone needed to be a primary caregiver, so to speak. Um, uh, My wife has been very fortunate. She is in her 36th year with the same company. So she is very tenured, very blessed in that regard. Uh, The rental car industry was going through some upheaval. It was post 9-11. People were not traveling as much. Um, And the industry was takeovers, buyouts, and all the big guns were merging. Um, and it was just not, you know, it was not pleasant. It was not comfortable to go to work every day. And those two factors, her longevity and my unhappiness, I was the one voted off the island. Uh, so I, I came home, um, and would look around the high, take the kids to school, you know, get them dropped off or whatever. And would get home and realize I've got six hours to kill. You know, so I upped my training again, uh, started coaching some of my peers, uh, then got back engaged in the sport at that time.
0: So let's on jump a prof- back.
1: On a professional level.
0: Right. Let's jump back a little bit. Um, Cause you had mentioned that, uh, you guys were, they, the, the rental industry was hit pretty hard after after 9-11. Let's talk about that. What was 9-11 like for you in Alabama?
1: I was a fleet manager for one of the big rental car firms. Um, uh, I think we had like 1500, 1600, uh, automobiles, uh, it was my job to make sure they were all in a safe, rentable, clean condition, and uh, I I remember that day I was I was I had a uh, application in my hand, and I was walking down the hallway uh, to greet a, the applicant to walk him to my de- to my office to interview. And they started telling me that, hey, you know, World Trade Tower's on fire. That's no big deal, you know. And I came out of the interview and really started seeing what was going on. And at that point in time, everything had to be rented because all of the, you know, there was no, the airlines were shut down. No one was flying anywhere. So all, all of our vehicles were rented and in a matter of a week, we're scattered all across the United States. Uh, and when you have a fleet of about 1,500 cars for a parking lot that was designed for 350 units, that just doesn't fit. You know, because our business is not, or the business is not to have a car sitting around. The business is to have them out on the road. You know, if, if they're just parked, you're not, you're getting- generating revenue uh, so we, we uh, captured up all the vehicles nobody was traveling um, and in a matter of a month we had reduced the fleet size by about a fourth and uh, once the fleet was cut well below a thousand units uh, then headcount was next Uh, If you don't have the volume, you don't need employees. Uh, So that was that was next, and then everybody was you know additional hours, uh, working longer, uh, doing odd things that you know is not necessary in your wheelhouse. Um, But I think what was very. Odd, very strange uh, you're at the airport so often you know traffic patterns. you know where the airport uh, airplane is supposed to be. and when you see military aircraft coming across the top of the runway, when you see the uh, the gunships rolling down or going down the runway before a commercial airliner would take off that was that was that was odd. You know that's just not something civilians see. Yeah.
0: So how much uh, how much did nine eleven affect you personally or your family?
1: You know, I don't I don't think it did. Um, I think the, for me it was the ref, the personal reflections on where are we as a society in America, where are we as a society worldwide and how do we treat our fellow man? You know, just because your philosophies and my philosophies don't, don't align doesn't mean that we can't work out our differences. And, uh, you know, that's, and I, I still struggle with that, you know. There's, you know, if if I disagree with you about what what to have for lunch, we can work that out. You know, we can get still get in the same car and we can drive to a restaurant. You know, and still we may have a variety of of options to order that we're both happy, even though we're you know neither one at the restaurant of our choosing. And it and it's like that, uh, you know. It's like that with with diplomacy. You know, we we, we get guys. Uh, with opposing viewpoints and they can't go to the table and sit and share, you know, what what they have, their their thought processes and, and, and their their lifestyles and their philosophies. It's my way or no way. And right. I don't I don't I don't think that's right.
0: So as a, as the war kicked off um, and first with Afghanistan, then with Iraq when did you start noticing um, the the different branches and wanting to support or somehow be involved with veterans?
1: Are you asking how how I got involved with the Navy?
0: Yeah, just or or, or, I, do, of, or were you do or, or were you doing anything prior to that locally?
1: We we're very we we're very fortunate. Um, about a half a mile from my house is uh, the Lakeshore Foundation. It is a Olympic and Paralympic training site, one of 13 in the United States. Um, in addition to that, it offers uh, uh, rehab and recreation and sport opportunities for people with disabilities. Uh, my two younger kids do have qualifying conditions. And... <laughs> So our family, is that's our gym. You know, that's, that's, that's where we do our stuff. And when some of the, uh, the people in the building found out my background, they invited me to get involved with the youth development program, the youth track and field team, which I did. Um, and then a couple of years later, my youngest, my son decided he wanted to participate. And, you know, that was, that was a blast. Uh, my wife is a, a recreational runner. Our oldest daughter competed t- collegiately. Uh, and then when the youngest, when our son decided that he, I want to do that, you know, i want to get involved with track. Now that was, that was a blast. So getting to work with him and his peers, his friends, um, got me involved with adaptive athletes. You know, that was my first inclusion with adaptive sport.
0: Um, so can you, and, keep, um, oh, I was just going to ask, could you give a little insight to what the Paralympics is? Cause I know you mentioned the Paralympics and the Olympics yeah, just for para- people who don't know.
1: Paralympics is sport for people with physical disabilities. Um, Visually impaired athletes, uh, spina bifida, uh, cerebral palsy athletes, uh, amputees. So people with physical disabilities, which is highly different from Special Olympics, which was founded uh, by the Shrivers and the Kennedys, Ethel Kennedy, uh, in the 70s. For uh, the Special Olympics for people with uh, mental challenges, Uh, so it is very, very different. Um, The Paralympics can well the Paralympics can be traced back to uh, post war uh, in England, 1948, when Doctor Gutman in London was using movement to assist. In the rehab of British pilots that uh, had suffered uh, spinal cord injuries, m- crash landing. Oh uh, wow! He was he was the first that really really championed that. Uh, the way that, you know before then, you know if somebody had a spinal cord injury, you just stuck them in a chair in a corner somewhere. You know, and he was really the first that got, that got people moving as part of their rehab. And then uh nineteen forty-eight he had he hosted a competition and then in nineteen sixty uh it was an international competition held for the first time in Rome uh in the weeks following uh the Olympic Games. And then in nineteen eighty-eight, the first time that the International Olympic Committee and the International Paralympic Committee joined together to host the games. That was in Seoul, South Korea.
0: Yeah. So did so they fall under the Olympic umbrella then? And
1: They ex- do now. Okay. In fact, uh, the middle of last year, the U.S. Olympic Committee rebranded itself to the International Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So oh, yes, wow. it is under the same umbrella.
0: And so these are uh, t- t- trying to Phrases right. These are the adaptive quality athlete or adaptive athletes of Olympic skills. Had they not been in that, I trying to say this right. Basically, they're the equivalent of the non-adaptive athletes. The the in terms of their skill set, they're yes. the best of
1: yeah, the best of the best. Yeah, the best of the best the high performance minded individuals
0: so as you start training your son and his peers um are you now so are you are you learning about adaptive sports at that point in time as you teach or are you did you already know a lot about the adaptive programs
1: no i didn't know as much as i do now and and even Even with able bodied sports, you you don't know it all. You're always looking and reading. Uh, You know, I have my wife gets irritated at me with Amazon showing up every day with two or three books. Uh, I'm constantly researching the sport, the history of the sport, and, you know, the the studies on how to be better and, and the the current training methods and how to do this and how to do that and what works here. And, you know, you're constantly, but in, in the, in the scheme of things, Tommy, it's all about movement. You know, we make it complex a lot of times. Um, and in our sport, you know, it's, it's, how do we get, how do we get this ball to fly as far as possible? You know, and, and, and you're demonstrating the shot. The shot. Put, yeah, demonstrating the shot. And we get in the ring and we spin and we glide and we hurl and we do this and we do that and we dance and we tap tap and flip out and but if you break it down, it's ballistics. Yeah. You, know? you accelerate the implement as quickly as you can and launch it at a 45-degree angle with as much force and velocity behind it as, as possible. That's, that's all we're trying to do. And once you break it down that way, then it's easy to take those cons that, that this is what we're trying to do. And if the individual has no fingers, you know, they have no finger, well, you can't teach as you would an able-bodied athlete. Well, you have to flip it out. You flip when you at the release, well, there's nothing to do that. So let's just break it down to the simple steps of you release the ball with as much force as you can at a 45 degree angle. And then that makes it easier to understand. And it makes it easier to adapt.
0: Wow. That's, you made it a lot easier for me to get my head around just in that little demonstration. So, um, had you been, at that point in time, what year was this that you started working with your son, roughly?
1: Uh, he came in a little bit later. I think uh, my first year in with the to sport was 2006.
0: Okay. So I know I went through my thing and ended up here in Texas in 2007. And the Center for the Intrepid is where a lot of the amputees were being sent. I specifically remember an Army First sergeant I met probably two weeks after he had gotten blown up and lost his leg. Within three months, he was running, uh, practicing for a marathon. At the, at the same time, I remember growing up and doing these cross-country trips with my neighbor, uh, going to Kalamazoo, Michigan, where we would see uh, her brother and or her, her and her brother would see their grandfather who old time farmer had lost, I think one leg and a hand due to diabetes. And the contraptions that he wore at that time back in the 70s and 80s were, to say the least, barely mobile. And he had the old uh, finger claw version of a hand, unlike now. So have you noticed just how, the pace of which these adapted, that these prosthetics are changing uh, amputees' lives?
1: Oh, when it comes to sport. Yes, not only in terms of sport, but just in everyday life, just being able to, uh, uh, you know, function in 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 a world that uh, is not always adaptable. Uh, you, the, you mentioned um, the old hook hook in. in in my small town there was a, there was a gentleman that um, that terrified me you know i was probably 8 9 10 years old and i remember when i had hair i was sitting in the barbershop one saturday morning to get my hair cut and he, and he comes in and you know he was struggling to get the door open with his hook and you know, I don't remember how many prosthetics he had, but he he um he lived through Southeast Asia and came back uh a little bit more different than the rest of us. And I can remember being at that age and being almost scared, if that's the right word, because you just I didn't see people like there though you know, people with prosthetics people with with disabilities were just not common but I am so thankful that my kids, uh, my family, my friends, you know we're not terrified by that anymore you know we grow up my kids have grown up sure they have all their fingers they have all their toes but they're still a little bit slower and you know they're, they're looked at. Strangely, at times, but as far as being accepted, oh man, they are. You know, they and their peers are in the military wounded and and you know, you know people with traffic accidents and industrial accidents. Uh, widely, widely, widely accepted now. Not saying it couldn't be better, um, but yeah, and then the the equipment that's out there to make life easier is just phenomenal.
0: So, um, as you're doing this, are you also working with adults or were you just solely focusing on on kids at that point in time?
1: Um, at that point, I was working with youth in the Paralympic realm. And I was working with adults in the competitive road racing world. Uh, that was mid two thousands, I guess, uh, up to about two thousand ten. Oh, those so.
0: lines. Yeah,
1: and then so, uh, it just so
0: happened. Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask. So, what about yourself? Were you uh, still looking to compete or training yourself?
1: I was. I was. I was approaching that fifty year old mark, and. Um, I remembered my first trip to run the Boston Marathon and how much of a blast it was. So a couple of years before my 50th birthday, I called that same group of guys up. I said, hey, I'm having a party. You got to qualify. We're going to go run Boston again. You know, this was uh, 20 years after the fact. And so right before I turned 50, I was, putting, I was putting in more volume then than I was in college. Uh, and I was more healthy than I was in college because I didn't realize back then uh, the concepts of training as I do now. Uh, the active recovery phases, the hard, easy days, structure, and when to go hard, when to back off, uh, filling your body out. I didn't, I didn't know that. You know, uh, it's taken me a while to uh, to put all those pieces together, but I feel pretty confident in my basic program now. But you know, like I said, I'm always tweaking, always uh, changing things up for athletes. But uh, my, I, I looked at that, my finest—not my fastest—but my finest marathon, the best experience I've ever had on the, on the course. Was two thousand and eleven Boston Marathon, and I ran uh, three fifteen that day, and negative split the course. I was a minute faster over the back half that I was the first half, and if you know anything about that course, it's
0: it's not you know, an easy course.
1: That's not easy. <laughs>
0: So let's go ahead and get into. At some point in time, um, the Warrior Games started. I don't know. I've never asked you how long you were with the, with Team Navy. I want to say it was two thousand ten.
1: I did a that, camp in two thousand thirteen. I think the game started in two thousand ten. Uh, December two thousand thirteen. I did a camp. Um, there was an individual that was a contractor here in Birmingham. There's living here in Birmingham, a uh, contractor with some of the providers and she was working with team Navy and asked if I would be interested in, in working with a, with a track program. And I said, you know, let's give it a shot. You know, see what these guys are doing. Sure. And um, I guess they like me because they've kept me on this whole time.
0: So you've been around for seven years.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't so, know if there's there's not many people in the program that's been there as long as I have.
0: So let's talk about your first interaction with the Wounded Warriors. Let alone just Team Maybe. How how did you find these guys? To uh, how receptive were they when you showed up and said, "Hey, let's try track." Did many of them know what they were getting into?
1: Yes. Uh, many of the individuals had been athletes in the past and they were looking for new outlets. Now, the. Uh, I don't know how to say this because I haven't put it together in my head very well either. But because we do not have as much of a military presence in war zones, we no longer have amputees as we did in the past. You know, the the Navy program now is more of uh, illness and industrial traffic accidents. It's It's very little combat wounded. And even then... You know, as as you would know, the combat wounded were primarily corpsmen that had gone on shore with the Marine Corps. Right. You know, those were the guys that were that were taking the hits. Uh, and once that uh, era of people have passed through the program, you know, we just don't we just don't have the same uh, injuries as we did then. But but early in the early years, there were more amputees guys wanting to you know try to run and try to run fast again
0: so let's uh let's talk about the amputees in in general because i know you have um you have the guys who want to run run and then we have the push cart or push chair so was there how for the guys who had never done the push chair before how was that for them did you see a change in them through that camp
1: I have, uh, not necessarily that camp, but individuals as a whole, um, I have seen individuals who were at the bottom. They, you know, I, I don't have any, anywhere to go. I don't have anything to do. I don't know why I'm here. I'm just here. I can't walk. I can't run. You know, once I coax them into a track chair, and they become mobile, they become a different person, and that—that that is why I'm still here. I enjoy giving people opportunity. I enjoy people, giving people opportunity. That's that's all I'm here to do. Um, in the early days, and and this is a little this is a little bit of paradigm shift that's going on in my head too like i said i you know i, I bring a competitive edge to the sport um, but with the team navy programming for me it's not about getting on the podium it's not about winning a medal at the games it's not about running the fastest out there it's about finding a place to get in your community to get with your family to get with your peers and participate, to go out to your local 5K and run, walk, and to to flip on the TV this summer and watch the Olympic Games and know what those athletes, a little bit about what they're doing. And to me, it's just sharing the sport so that people will get involved. Uh, once you do that, then, then the victories are all internal.
0: So now we talked about um... – we talked about the amputees. Now, one of the other big issues that came out of the war, um, and we're seeing it more and more in other aspects besides just the war, is TBI. Um, and I know our team has had its fair share of people who had TBI. Did you find? How did you find working with uh, people with moderate to severe TBI? I mean, obviously, that's not a Paralympic. Uh, category or is it
1: it's not there is a class paralympics are divided in classifications so that like-bodied individuals compete against their peers so you have uh, uh, total blindness competing against same. You'll have single leg amputees competing against same. There is a classification for intellectual disabilities, but those individuals uh, must have a IQ measured at 75 or lower. Yeah. So that would not necessarily fit. I'm sorry. That would not fit this particular uh, group of individuals. Uh, so for me, I, I think that the challenge, I, I, my philosophy is I teach the sport, I coach the individual. So in order to do that, I need to be in tune with the individual. And if you can become someone, if you can provide trust, if if the athlete can trust you that you know what you're doing and you can give them instruction to improve, then you've got to trust them in return to be able to go out and do as you asked. It's just a trust and, and, and knowledge. And once you know each other and you can work well together and, and not everybody's the same, you know, not every TBI presents itself the same. Uh, you, you've seen it out there. You've got friends in the, in the program that, uh, you know, some are all in, and some are a little bit more timid.
0: So, what would you, what would you tell someone who's in that category of I just don't think I can do it. Uh, I, I'm, you know, star track athlete now. I am name your illness or injury, and 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 just don't feel like it's going to be worth it
1: yeah there again you've got to find what you've got to give that person worth you said it you said i I don't see worth it well you've got to show them the value you know you've got to find whatever it is in their life that's going to say this activity is going to assist you and and show them how to do it now at that point it's an individual choice you know like i said all I'm trying to do is give opportunity. If I can give the opportunity, point the direction, you know, and then hopefully more than than the more than a few are going to start, uh, you know, going to seize that opportunity and keep moving forward.
0: I I've, I know from my experience with working with you that uh, you I I did the games in 2018 when I met you. And you gave me a big push. Uh, I think when I talked to you, it was, well, what sport are you gonna do? Or what sports are you interested in? I said, archery, that's it. And we talked and ended up at that camp doing the longest run of my life, which was I think 11 miles one night on my own. But so how does it make you feel when you see people just blossom when they come out of their shell? I don't know if we've sent any people to the Paralympics from our team specifically, but guys who've just really come out on to their own realm.
1: You know, that's when people like yourself come back and, and say, you know, you've really inspired me or you gave me a niblet and I ran with it. You know, that's what, that, that's why, that's why I'm here. You know, giving people opportunities and letting them find themselves that way, you know, that's that's a thrill, you know, and, you know, and like you said, with archery and one of the things in camps that I like to, you know, like to to tell people is sell the attributes of a running program as it lowers the heart rate. Which gives you a more steady shot, will it not? You know, so you got sure. to, you got to show how this is beneficial. You know, and that's just one way in the shooting sports, you know, the archeries and and the, and the, the other shooting sports.
0: So do you foresee, um, and we'll get into 2020 here in a little bit, but do you foresee them adding any other? Um, track or field-based activities to the Warrior Games or Invictus, which we can talk about that one too.
1: Track and field events, you mean? Yeah. Other than, okay, at, at the Warrior Games, contested is 100, 200, 400 meters, which you can go either way with a four. 100, is it a sprint, is it a middle distance with our, our peer group? I don't know. Uh, then you've got the 8 and the 15 as distance events. So those have always been contested. Um, and in the field events, it was the shot and the discus. And all of those would be for either uh, able-bodied individuals or people that would utilize either a throwing chair or a race chair to compete. Uh, historically that's those are the those are the events in 2020 the club throw was to have been introduced i am going to make the assumption that it will remain for 2021 Uh, it is a paralympic only event not many people have seen it a throwing club looks like a combination between a bowling pin and a mini baseball bat. And the individual that competes with this are your low functioning CP classes, your class 31s and your class 32s. Very low hand function. And they will take the throwing club and hold it either with a split finger or by the knob and toss it there is no rule on how to make the release. You can throw it overhanded, sidearmed, across your body. Just, just get it out here. Um, so that that implement was to have been implemented this year. Implement, implemented. That's a little play on words, I guess. Um, but that was supposed to come out this year. Um, I'm just, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say they're not going to make uh, changes to the program and and add events or take away events. But I would, I would guess if there were to be an event added, it would be the long jump. I would, I would like to see the long jump in the, in the water games.
0: So what is your, what is your personal background with the field side of track? I didn't ask you that.
1: Oh, I've had to learn it, Tommy. I've I've had to learn it. Um, back in 1990, I think it was. There was a young individual at uh, at UAB, and I coached him in the decathlon, and he set the school record and was still the, the record holder, of course, when the when the program went away. But Will you I was. Remind us I was what- Decathlon is 10 events contested over two days. Uh, it starts with a 100-meter. Uh, You've got the shot, the disc, the 400 hurdles, the pole vault, high jump, long jump, 1,500-meter run, uh, 10 events, and it's stored off of a table. So you don't, you're you not necessarily competing in the 100 against your fellow competitor, but your time correlates to a point and those are accumulated per event, so the the point total is what you're trying to to uh, to for your mark. Is what you're trying to earn your marks on. So you know if you may be a good 100 meter guy, but you're a terrible pole vaulter. Well, the other guy may flip flop, so you're you know just going to wash out that way. So I I, I had my uh, my foray into the um, field events was back then. Uh, I had to learn, learn quite a bit about that. And then over the years, I've just added, added to that base. And I mentioned, uh, I mentioned the throwing club. I have a lot of experience there as, as my son is a class 32, uh, Paralympic classification, classified athlete. So he, he is eligible for the throwing club. So, to so I was ask that you, quite a bit.
0: I was going to ask what a C, I think you said CP when you were mentioning. Cerebral palsy. Oh okay.
1: okay. Cere- Cerebral palsy.
0: Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that means I'm, I'm guessing you never really tried to compete in any of the field events yourself.
1: Playing around, you know, doing but some not, doing some stuff not, mm-hmm. at at you know at five six, you know, I was not a hardler. Uh, I tried to steeplechase a couple of times and realized that barrier is just was too much for me to go over. Um, you know, but then I've learned how to throw, you know, to get by enough to teach the next, next generation of guys, you know, and, and we've got some great, you know, we've got great coaches on at oh, yeah. team Navy and, yeah. uh, I, we are so fortunate on the field side to have uh, Kent and Ramona Pagel with us. Uh, you know, Kent was a Paralympic coach and a high-performance coach, but his wife, Ramona, was 20-year record holder in the shot and four-time Olympian. You know, so anytime I have a throws question, you know, I'm, I'm keeping a notebook on all, the, all of Kent's knowledge. Uh, yeah. But it's the same way with with cycling, you know, Greta uh, Nymus, uh, you know, Paralympian her own right. And if I have and I do, I have I have uh, cycling questions, you know, on the bike or myself or, you know, buying equipment for the kids or something. And, I'll, you know, I send uh, Greta a text and ask for, you know, we we'll, we'll probably communicate two or three times a week. In, in that regard, you know, and now that they've added rowing, uh, you know, Michelle with, with her aerobic knowledge, you know, it's just another way, for another aerobic uh, activity, you know, sharing, sharing notes with her, you know. So, yeah, the, the, it's a very good group of coaches that, that Team Navy has assembled. Oh, I'm proud think, to be just a small part of that.
0: I, th- I think we have the best personally. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah,
1: because I, well, I don't, and I think, I think for the most part, I, we're we're not concerned about metal count. We're not concerned about when it. We're concerned about the individual. I think some of the other service branches may get wrapped up in. Well, this guy's faster. Or, yeah, but that's not to say when we go to the games, when we go to compete. It's all, you know, it's all in at that point in time. But for me, the big picture is getting getting people involved and getting them off their cans and out the door and involved and, and moving.
0: So with your experience with the kids, Team Navy, what's your, what was your impression prior to uh, working with Team Navy and the veterans um, versus now?
1: I had an awakening. We were at a camp, and there was some very high-performing athletes on the track. And we were sharing workout space with this group of individuals. And Alberto Salazar uh, was a head coach of the the Oregon Project at the time. And these kids were – they were Olympic. We were sitting – Watching Olympians work out, we were on the same track watching them work out. And I know they had that they had task at hand. And I was trying to make sure that our group, you know, stayed to the side or stayed clear or whatever. And uh, I was sitting there with, with uh, Alberto, and I, I said, Coach, but these aren't necessarily high-performance athletes. Oh, and he unwrapped on me. He was a... No, but they're high performance people and that is what really that's when it really came around for me i think that was 2015 i think is when we had that conversation and ever since then that's when i realized it's it's not about winning medals it's about working with a with an individual uh so yeah, so so for me, from coming from the adaptive side of, uh, from the able-bodied side to the adaptive side, it's it's all about, it's high-performance people, not necessarily high-performance athletes, and you're one of those, Tommy.
0: Oh, thank you. I I don't feel it sometimes, but thank you so much. So let's get into 2018. Uh, we meet up in Orlando. We do the games, then. 2019, I sit out and we come into what I call the, pardon my French, the shit show year. Um, We, being uh, all of us who were at that January camp, were probably patient zeros for COVID in our independent regions. Uh, Little did we know when we landed that there was a worldwide pandemic starting. So, that was the last time all of us were together in a, the same space, whether it was myself and Jules and Kelly or some of the other people and some of the other coaches and some of the other um, uh, Navy Safe Harbor, Navy Wounded Warrior staff that puts on this whole, these camps. When you left, um, and then March, I, I consider March 13th day one of the pandemic in reality in March hit, we were all scheduled to have our team trials at the end of March. How did you, ha- I mean, you've been doing this for seven years, seven trials. How did you feel missing out or losing that trial? Not being able oh, to was, reconnect was, with everybody.
1: It was more for me personally, it was more than just the trials because in addition to team Navy, um, I also have the youth programming for at Lakeshore Foundation and I have my own coaching program, uh, a nonprofit called the Cahaba distance project. And these are athletes that were, uh, road racers for the most part. Some, uh, some track on occasion, but during the summer I'm on the road practically every weekend whether it be at a road race, at a team Navy camp or with the kids, you know, I'm, I'm at a, at a track meet or a road race and it did not happen. And it was so strange being, being home on the weekends, you know, being home in the middle of the week. Um, you know, I think every window in my house is unstuck. You know, I think I spent, spent a day just going around making sure that everything would open and close you know, not painted shut, uh, just odd things like that that you find to occupy your time. But, uh, you know, and then, then my wife uh, set up uh, a space downstairs to work, you know, so she has like three different monitors and a laptop going all the time. And, uh, you know, she'll go in and close the door, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the mornings and then come back out breath of air and lunchtime and then you know we, we won't see her again till five and you know it, it's just it's just odd being at the same house and and yet you don't see the people that you're with um and, but, you know but as far as the navy goes uh you know we were having conference calls and we were having uh email chains back and forth on how to select a team because we, we were going to, under the impression that we were still going to have a games of some sort. Um, so there was, you know, there was some, some discussion on how do we select a team? Do we select a team and, uh, and those type of things. And then it was, it was not, it was disappointing, but it was not surprising when the warrior games were canceled for San Antonio. Um, I think it, looking back, definitely it was, it was the right thing to do, uh, but knowing that there are individuals out there that depend on military programming to keep themselves inspired, that, that hurt. That hurt. And that's, that's the reason, you know, you've, I think you've seen my intro uh, discussion a lot of times. I'll, I'll ask people, you know, who I want to make a Warrior Games team, you know, and I'll ask for a show of hands. And, and I don't care. I just want you to get involved in the sport and improve. You know, I want you to get out of the house and move and knowing that there was people not doing that, that, that hurt.
0: In, in your region and, uh, Birmingham and in Alabama in general, did they shut down, um, parks and tracks and things like that yes. during the early days? Yes.
1: Um, we were actually, my, in addition to track and field, my son plays wheelchair basketball. And he. Uh, we checked him out of school. It was his senior year of high school. We checked him out on Wednesday. I think you said that was the 13th. I think you said. Yeah, the,
0: thir- 12th, the 13th was
1: thirteenth, Something like that. So we checked him out of school on that day, driving to... Uh, Wichita Falls. Um, at about nine o'clock, we stopped outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, to uh, to get in the hotel to finish the drive the next day, going we to the national wheelchair basketball tournament. And as soon as we got checked into the hotel, the phone started blowing up with text messages. The tournament had been canceled. Uh, So we turned around and came back home the next day. Um, The school system shut down the following week. And then spring break was scheduled for the week following that. So we checked him out on on a Wednesday, Thursday, had two weeks off, and then they went online with the remainder of the school year. However, if you were a senior and you were satisfied with your average of the first three semesters, you, you were finished. You didn't have to go back. So my son did not go back to high school after we checked him out that day. The, the day that the pandemic, you know, the pandemic started.
0: Wow. That's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's just been, it's just been different ever since then. Yeah. But I think now we've almost, I I think now we've almost made different normal. Have we not?
0: I'm trying to fight the the new normal. I mean, I, I was fortunate where I live in San Antonio. I literally have the San Antonio River about 200 yards away from my front door. So they never shut down just going out and walking along the river or running along the river. And I had a friend that fortun I was fortunate enough. She wanted to join the military. I've told you about her in the past. So we would meet up and we would train three days a week. So I would keep running and get her running. Sadly, back in November, her father, her father uh, has cancer. So she went back to Italy. So, um, but yeah, I was able to keep that going. But as far as we would do Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, just three to five, two to three miles running. And then on Sundays, we'd meet up at uh, one of the local schools that had a track, university or high school. Well, as soon as the pandemic shut down the schools, for some reason, tracks became a major infection area. I'm being facetious because they just locked everyone out of the school property. So I couldn't get any track time which I found was odd. But um,
1: but remember, Tommy, see, that is where adaptive sport comes into play, right? You know, the Kenyans, they won a whole lot of distance medals, and there's yeah. not very many tracks in Kenya and (laughs) it's all about adapting you know all you got to do is just run down to your local hardware store and get a measuring wheel measure yourself out uh 100 meters 10 times you know or 10 meters 100 uh, 10 meters 10 meters 10 times you got 100 meters you know you can double around that block you know you can make your own track in the parking lot
0: yeah, I was I being a little bit lazy because I didn't want to run on concrete at sprint speed. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it, it really did. It, I saw some really great positive things come out of the early days of the lockdown. The I know you've been out to San Antonio before, and n- n- you're familiar with the Riverwalk. Well, uh-huh. or the southern extension of it. And there were days where I'd see on a Monday or Tuesday, more people than I would have pre-pandemic seen on a Sunday or, or Saturday walking or running. So it was good to see people getting out and moving, but yeah, it was super weird even here. So- hey,
1: yeah, I was the same way, you know, we would, we've got a, a fitness trail very similar to the river walk uh, in my neighborhood. And it was good to see families out there moving as as a whole. But, you know, it's that's even slowed down. You just, you're just not seeing it. Yeah, uh, we, we, not we, at we, all. I think we, we're, we're back to accepting the consequences of whatever happens. I'm just going to go on and do my thing.
0: Well, I, I've noticed, at least here recently, there's a direct correlation between lack of traffic on the trail with increased traffic car traffic in the neighborhood people are now starting to drive more and they don't feel as locked in so maybe we'll start to see a return to normal i do know a couple friends have run an actual in-person 5ks recently here in texas um which is the main reason why i remember march 13th because march 14th i had a 5k scheduled that got canceled that day that's why i remember that so vividly now this year we were fortunate enough to do um and we're still doing uh these virtual camps which were great how have you adapted your other coaching stuff to online or are you still trying to get person or face-to-face in terms of being able to coach
1: i'm getting face-to-face um uh, the Lakeshore shore uh summer track program was just totally canceled. There were no adaptive meets held anywhere in the United States last summer. Um, and, and so, you know, with, with funding purposes and no members in the building, you know, it was just not economically feasible to, to, to continue on the way we were. Uh, I've worked with my son one-on-one quite a bit. Uh, you know, both uh, on the track and with the throws, um, but then the uh, the, Cahaba, the Cahaba distance athletes, we still meet up in safe environments, in safe space, and and we train on a on a regular basis. Um, our race opportunities have been very limited. March sixth, we ran a ten thousand meter. 10K road race here in Birmingham, and that was the last event that we were able to uh, host that did not have some sort of uh, uh, safety measures in place. We ran a race in October that was more or less a time trial. You lined up a single file, stood on a dot, and they, you know, they would tell you to go, and then you would cross the timing mat at that point in time. But you were there was no head to head competition, you know. It was just run as fast as you can, and you know, pass people six feet to their to their side, you know, to their right or whatnot.
0: I, I'm having, I'm trying to imagine because the race, the last race I ran here in San Antonio, was in February, and it had 350 people. I'm trying to imagine trying to do a time trial with 350 people with a staggered start.
1: This it didn't they didn't have that many. Uh oh, no, I'm just event, saying for a f-
0: future. Right, right. I understand.
1: But th- this particular event uh is going on its 47th year. It was oh, wow. held here in Birmingham. It was the Vulcan 10k. Uh, so it's his 47th year of existence, and the, the local track club just wanted to keep that thing going. Uh, and, you know, the people in the area knew it was happening, but it was not advertised at all. Uh, so it was a very, very few, uh, very small turnout. And you know, there may have been 300 people there, but uh, it, it probably took. Three, four, five, six minutes to get everybody across the starting line. That way,
0: do you think? Uh, do you think we'll see a return this year to more in-person events?
1: I think we will, but I don't know to what extent. Um, I do not think we're going to see the 3000 three thousand-person uh, big city marathons. Well, I, we're not going to see that. Uh, but we may see the 100 people marathons in remote locations. Uh, you know, you, you may, you may see something along those lines. But yeah, the Mead City Marathons are not, I don't think they're going to have Even Chicago. I had a couple of athletes that were in the uh, uh, Houston Marathon uh, Olympic de- Development Program. was supposed to be been January 21st, I think, was the date. Uh, so, you know, that got canceled back during the summer. You know, so even knowing that race was, was canceled is, was a punch gut gut punch you know and then boston now has pushed that marathon back to the fall with an announcement this week saying that that may not even happen uh
0: i i just don't see anything realistically big happening for 2022 maybe 2023 at the earliest depending on how everything gets rolled out to that what's your what's your personal feelings on these virtual marathons and virtual races
1: virtually they're not for me um you know if you want to race somebody you draw a line across a st- dirt draw a line in the dirt across a, across a road or whatever you get behind it somebody says go the first one back is a winner you know for me that's what we've got to do that is that's competition that's what drives me and, and most of the people in in our training group uh Not saying that we haven't done some virtual things uh, just to keep stimulated and to help out some race directors that have been very good to us who are struggling with revenues or struggling to put, you know, food on the table. You know, so we've done some things with them just to help, you know, just to help out.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: I I I do do know. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, not a, I, I I'm not a fan of virtual races, but I understand, I understand why they're there. But I, I also for think me. that that's a money grab now. I think some people say, oh, we, we can put on a race and not even have to spend money to do it. and That's not
0: right. I, I know from my perspective, and along with several of our Wounded Warrior brethren, who, it, again, it's not about making the team, but it's about being around the team that um, makes it hard to even just do some of these virtual camps because you yeah, I see you, but I can't shoot the crap with you after after practice or and it's just like a virtual race to me, I'm racing against a person who's 10 feet in front of me. And once I pass them, I'm racing against a person who's 100 feet in front of me. So that's kind of how I feel about it. Right. Now, um, I know the first pin to fall in the Warrior Games was the cancellation of Invictus. And we didn't really talk about Invictus. So Invictus took Warrior Games to another step up. Have you coached for Invictus?
1: Yes, I made the uh, the trip to Australia uh, a couple of years ago. Um, that was... Uh, you know, just seeing all peoples of the world, militaries of the world come together and knowing that is just not a U.S. thing that everybody in the world is, is, is suffering uh, with military injured, with illnesses, uh, and just seeing guys and girls get out there and compete and do their best. That was, that was really inspiring because I think that the purest form of competition occurred that I've ever witnessed occurred at, at, at those games. Uh, I've seen so many uh, acts of sportsmanship where you would allow a competitor to run alongside you and finish together, knowing that you had that individual covered. Uh, the camaraderie was was just phenomenal, you know. And I know that in the U.S. military, we all say, you know, we're on the same team. But that definitely was was a worldwide thing that I saw there.
0: Yeah, and that was, and that's put on by uh, Prince Harry, who was one of the few royal family members who actually served and deployed. And he, they continue to do it, and they were supposed to do it in The Hague this year, if I remember right? Yes. In 2020. Yes. And I, get, I, I last I heard, it was maybe going to happen this year. No, um, uh,
1: the games in The Hague have been uh, canceled. They will not oh, they occur. Have. Yeah. And then that the next uh, 2024, don't quote me on that date because it may have changed, uh, will be hosted by Germany.
0: Okay. So there is, uh, with all of this, I know um, it was mentioned at the camp that they're looking at Orlando this year for if Warrior Games goes through. So there is hope. And that's one of the things that, again, I wanna bring you on because one, I love you as a coach, but two, you bring a lot of hope for a lot of the guys who didn't think that they could go further.
1: Well, thank you, Tommy. Uh, you know, it's, it's guys like you, and, and like you said, you know, it's it's the conversations in the hotel lobbies. It's the conversations while you're waiting for everybody to show up for your practice session. Those are the conversations that I enjoy. And you're, you're able to learn the individuals and you're able to really know what takes them and, 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 and how to help them reach their goals. You know, cause I know there's one guy out there, you don't coach him, you manage him. You know, he knows what he's wanting to do and, You know, there's no need to attempt to put him in your, in your box. You've got to find his box and just make sure he doesn't hurt himself. You know, and those are, those are some of the things that, you know, that I've learned with, with adaptive sport and getting back to your, your TBI questioning earlier, but you know, those getting in person and those, those side conversations you alluded to, those, those are, are wonderful.
0: Yeah, it's it's the in-between moments, I think, that are the most important. So to close this out, I got to ask, if there's a guy out there watching this or listening to this who's military wounded, uh, car accident, civilian, someone who maybe was athletic or never was, but does see the one thing that no medical professionals are talking about right now is how important uh, being physically fit is. And says, you know, I want to... I want to make the first steps to start to move. And maybe I need a push chair to do this, or maybe I need just some basic sense of how do I start this? What do you tell them and where would you point them?
1: For track and field, the first place I would look would be uh, teamusa.org. That is the website for the USOPC uh, and there is a drop-down menu on the left side. It's a little bit difficult to navigate, but there is a drop-down menu and it says Paralympic Athletes. Uh, If you select that and then it will open a window that has all of the... Paralympic sports, and then you find track and field, uh, and then from there you can find uh, training sites, uh, training programs in your community. Uh, There will be a listing there uh, that you can go through. Uh, If not, give me a call, give me an email, and I'll be able to uh, point you because you know we coaches, we all. We know each other, you know, around the country, so we can put you in some place in your community that can, they can get you started.
0: All right, and Coach, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. It means the world to me.
1: Well, Tommy, it's been very. You, you should take this up for a full time. You're
0: you're you're a
1: very poised <laughs> interviewer.
0: Oh, thank you. I was hoping it was more of a conversation, but I'll take the yeah, interview. It was. It was. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, the Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.